Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Francine Hughes. But first, your true crime headlines. A California man was sentenced last week for the 2018 stabbing death of his supervisor manager at the Domino's Pizza, where they both worked. 32-year-old Rafael Sanchez will serve 26 years to life in prison for the attack, which claimed the life of assistant manager Daniel Anthony Sanchez. The victim, who is not related to his attacker, was a 21-year-old college student who hoped to become an English teacher someday. According to a news release from the L.A. County District Attorney, Rafael Sanchez snuck up behind his supervisor and stabbed him in the neck and back after having been told to do his work. His victim was rushed to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. Speaking to reporters after the sentencing, the victim's family announced that they had filed suit against Domino's Pizza and the owner of the franchise. They alleged that Rafael Sanchez was a problem employee at a different store and should have been fired instead of transferred to the La Puente location where the murder took place. The suit also alleges that the general manager of the franchise knew that Sanchez had threatened and harassed other employees, but took no action. In Philadelphia, a 17-year-old boy is in custody, charged with two murders, including the stabbing death of his foster mother and the beating and stabbing of a 20-year-old man who had lived with him in a previous foster home. Police believed that robbery was the motive in both killings. In charging documents, police accuse 17-year-old Xavier Johnson of stabbing his foster mother, 64-year-old Renee Guillard, to death in her home. Guillard was the mother of two grown sons, one of them a Philadelphia police officer, and had been a foster parent for 20 years. Johnson had only been in her care for a short time and called police the night before her murder after Johnson missed curfew and broke into her locked house. She told the responding officer that Johnson could stay with her that night, but that she could contact the foster agency the next day to have him placed in a different home. Police believe that Johnson murdered the woman sometime early the next morning. After relatives were unable to reach her, police paid another visit to Guillard's home, where they found her stabbed to death in her bathtub. Bloody footprints led to a bedroom, where her purse had been emptied onto a bed. As police searched for Guillard's stolen car, Xavier Johnson hung out with friends, tried to buy weed, and went on a shopping spree with Guillard's debit card. When police found him, he attempted to flee before crashing the stolen car. Guillard's debit card was found in his pocket at the time of his arrest. Johnson is also accused of the beating and stabbing death of 20-year-old Jimmy Mao, whose body was found in a duffel bag at the bottom of a ravine in West Philadelphia. Police believe that Mao was killed sometime before Guillard, though they were not sure when. They are also investigating Johnson's potential involvement in the disappearance of 16-year-old Jacob Merritt Richburg, an acquaintance of Mao's, who has been missing for a week. A South Carolina woman pleaded guilty to charges that caused her husband's death by poisoning his water with eye drops. 52-year-old Lana Clayton pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and tampering with human food in the death of her husband, Stephen Clayton, 
who died in their home in 2018. At the time of his death, Lana told investigators that her husband had been suffering from vertigo for the past few days and that she found him face down in the foyer when she came inside from mowing the lawn. Post-mortem examinations determined high levels of tetrahydrazoline in Stephen Clayton's system, which led investigators to determine that he had been poisoned. After her arrest, Lana Clayton confessed to police that she had been poisoning her husband's water with eye drops. She was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, a murder case that transformed public understanding of domestic abuse. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Francine Hughes. Unless otherwise noted, quotes in this episode derive from reporter Faith McNulty's book, The Burning Bed, which tells the story of Francine's life, one infused with pain, controversy, and rebellion. Some called her insane, others a hero. Suddenly this seemed very simple, Francine recalled. I wondered why I hadn't thought of it that way before. I had made a discovery. By losing everything, I had been set free. There were no chains around my ankles. All the things that had seemed important before, the house payments, car payments, welfare checks, leaving my mother and sisters, leaving the only place I knew, none of those things mattered. Minutes after this revelation, her family home went up in flames. Francine grew up in Jackson, Michigan in the 1950s. The town known as the birthplace of the Republican Party and the Coney Island hot dog sits 35 miles from Lansing and fosters a dense urban feel. Most of the residents own their homes. Most of the homes hold families. Born Francine Moran, one of four children, her mother named her after a famous French musician. Her father worked as a farmer, struggled with alcoholism, and routinely abused his wife, Francine's mom. By age 15, Francine was popular among her peers. She had a vivacious personality, a flair for comedy, a dimpled smile, and insecurity that she often masked with humor. On Friday and Saturday nights, she and friends would dress up and go out driving or gather somewhere to listen to records. On one of those nights, she met 18-year-old Mickey Hughes, a tall, thin man whose apparent confidence and worldliness set him apart from other boys. He fell hard for Francine, pressuring her to date and have sex with him. She resisted time and again, but he kept showering her with romantic words, suggesting he couldn't live without her. No one had ever loved me like that, she said. It was a very powerful thing. A powerful thing she recalled feeling guilty about, as though she must have done something to make him love her. Soon, she grew tired of fighting his sexual advances. One day, while sitting in the backseat of his car, parked in a cornfield, she gave in. It wasn't good, she said. It hurt, and I felt dry inside. 
I didn't know what to expect, not even the basics. I remember a feeling of being used, of giving something I really didn't want to give. I did it to please him. Immediately after, Francine feared she was pregnant. She also believed that to remain a good person, especially a good woman, she would have to marry him. After dropping out of high school to do so, Francine found herself in a virtual replay of what she witnessed throughout her childhood. Mickey's abuse started shortly after the couple wed, when he ripped her clothes off for dressing too provocatively. He feared she might attract other men. In an interview with People magazine in 1984, she said she was shocked because she had never been treated in such a way, adding, but what do you do when you're 16 years old and you had to beg your parents to let you get married? At first, Mickey seemed remorseful and apologized, swearing he would never do it again. She believed him, but it did happen again. When he caught Francine looking at a man's hands, he flew into a violent rage. At the time, they were living above his parents, who heard the commotion and confronted their son. Mickey threatened his dad and his mother phoned the police. Around Francine's family, her husband behaved more like a gentleman. The abuse escalated while the family grew. The couple had four children, Christy, James, Dana, and Nicole. Mouths difficult to feed, given that Mickey spent most of their money on alcohol. At the time, divorce was taboo, and very few people spoke about abuse. In most legal systems worldwide, domestic violence wouldn't be addressed until the 1990s. There wasn't really even a term for it yet. On top of that, such violence was all Francine knew growing up. It might have been easy to chalk it up to wretched but normal within a marriage. Even so, Francine wanted out. A fresh start for herself and her children. So with the guidance and support of a local social worker, she filed for divorce. Once it was granted, Mickey ignored the fact, continuing to show up whenever he wished and beating Francine over the course of several weeks. Then a serious car accident nearly took his life, leaving him with multiple fractures and a head injury. When he woke up from a coma, he immediately asked for Francine. Feeling awash with guilt, she visited her ex-husband, then took him into her home to care for him as he recovered. I really felt trapped after his accident, she later told press. I don't know why I felt so obligated to that man, but I did. Then the real hell began. Once he had recuperated, Mickey stayed in the home and refused to seek employment. He started drinking more heavily and beat Francine every few days, sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes for hours, before leaving for a bar. Peaceful days weren't only sparse, but overshadowed with fear that he would strike her at any moment, moments that inevitably came. If she fought back, he grew angrier and more violent. In her darkest hours, Francine considered suicide. But if she killed herself, she worried. Who would care for the kids? She conjured up multiple plans of escape, most ending with visions of her and the children having nowhere to go, and terror that if they fled, he would find them and the violence would intensify. 
Six years after the divorce, in early March of 1977, Francine was more than halfway through secretarial school, which she had pursued with support from her mother. She prayed that stamina and luck would help her make it through the rest. With each day, it seemed more difficult to drive to school and stay up late finishing homework, while Mickey chastised and tormented her. She later described feelings of everything building up. Though she was falling behind academically, she worked hard on a paper on the topic, What I Know About Myself Now, delving deep into her inner longings. At the paper's end, she wrote, It is hard for me to make changes in my life. It is easier to leave things as they are and not disturb anything. I know I should disturb things more. I know that I am capable of much more than I have been doing. I was waiting for something good or someone to happen to me. Now I know that nothing ever happens from luck and that you have to make things happen. The morning of March 9th, Francine woke up early, sipped coffee and read her term paper over with a sense that she had left a great deal unsaid. Then she left for school, noticing a sense of spring in the air. Between that and a sense of accomplishment for getting her homework done, she felt unusually happy. But after school, she gave a classmate a ride, which pushed her arrival time home 10 minutes late. Mickey was livid. As he criticized her, she grabbed the welfare check she'd been expecting from the mailbox. They were out of groceries yet again, so she told him she needed to run to the store. He was furious about that too. He yelled at her for wanting to leave without making a list first, one he insisted on seeing and approving. Most foods seemed to make him vomit, but he consistently blamed Francine's cooking. By the time she finally made the store run, she was exhausted, so she decided to serve frozen dinners. When she pulled them out in the kitchen, Mickey threw a tantrum, cursing at her and calling her a lazy bitch. She didn't think he would eat anyway, she recalled telling him, to which he replied, that's the trouble with you, you're always thinking. Sensing a physical attack, Francine searched her mind for a strategy, anything to lessen the literal blows. He demanded she drop out of school, tore her books, instructing her to burn them. When she resisted, he grabbed and shook her, his eyes frenzied. Do you want me to break your neck right now? He asked. She sobbed, the taste of blood filling her mouth as she succumbed to his demands, burning her books in a trash can. When she said she would go to school anyway, he threatened to use a sledgehammer to destroy her car. Francine tried to run outside, but he blocked the door. She called to her daughter Christy to phone the police. When officers arrived to the home, they said they couldn't arrest Mickey because they hadn't witnessed the attack. Laws at the time required that. Later, deputies would testify that the man told his wife, quote, it was all over because she called to report him. They also testified that he verbally abused Francine, threatening her life and those of officers. After they left, Mickey beat her again. When she made dinner for the kids, he threw the food on the floor, then rubbed her face in the sticky mess. He demanded she make him dinner and bring it to him in the bedroom. She did her best with limited ingredients, 
her shaky hands forming patties out of canned salmon and potatoes. After he had finished, he called her back into the bedroom, where she found him lying on the bed, his pants unzipped. I hated it worse than I ever had before, she said of the rape. The idea of him inside me, owning my insides, shoving deep into me, made my flesh crawl. I looked down at him and I had an impulse to put the pillow over his face and smother him. But I knew I wasn't strong enough. I clenched my teeth to keep from screaming. When he was done, she moved to the living room and sat down, feeling like a, quote, helpless, frozen fury, a volcano blocked before it erupts. She heard the kids moving about upstairs and remembered that they hadn't eaten all day. She could almost feel their stomachs hurting. But the kids swore they weren't hungry. Their appetites were likely numb, like hers. So they watched TV together, an activity she hoped might calm them down, distract them. As she sat there, her daughter Nikki's head on her lap, she thought of school and how hard she had worked, seemingly now for nothing. She considered how horrible her life had been since meeting Mickey and the hopelessness of her future, how she had suffered. She began mentally coaching herself. You don't owe him anything, Fran. You never did. Don't let him ruin the kids' lives the way he has ruined yours. Take them away. You've got to take them away. A plan flashed in her mind. She would sneak out with the children and drive them far, far away. But there was a problem. One of her kids, Dana, wasn't home yet. She couldn't let him return to their father. At the very least, that would mean she would return. And she had already caved too many times. This time had to be different. She stood up and started pacing, considering how much she hated her life with Mickey and how she had to get out, erase it, and never look back. That's when it struck her. Later, she recalled thinking, I wasn't going to come back because there wasn't going to be anything to come back to because I was going to burn the house down. As for Mickey, she would burn him too. Suddenly, her dark emotions gave way to excitement. She forgot everything else, Dana, the consequences, the reality of taking a life. She placed the kids in the car, which was parked just outside, and carried a jug of gasoline to the bedroom. I stood still for a moment hesitating, and a voice urged me on, she said. It whispered, do it, do it, do it, over and over, and I just kept on. With that, she poured gasoline around Mickey's bed and lit a match. As the fire blazed, flames swallowing the home, she drove to the county jail and turned herself in, declaring, I did it. When firefighters reached the home, they found Mickey's body amid the charred rubble. He had died from smoke inhalation. Francine was promptly charged with first-degree murder and felony murder, which brought a maximum sentence of life in prison. Later, the felony murder charge was dropped. That November, eight months after she lit a match to her life, the most sensational trial in the county's history began. 30 years old at the time, 
Francine seemed soft-spoken and nervous. Her court-appointed attorney, Arian Gridanis, a former prosecutor, took the case after others refused it. He believed Francine acted in self-defense. Psychiatrists who spoke on her behalf testified that something snapped in her that night, making her temporarily insane and prompting her to kill her ex-husband. Two of Francine's kids took the stand, testifying that they witnessed their parents arguing throughout the day, their father hitting their mother multiple times and threatening her with a knife. They described Mickey's violence as commonplace. The case drew national attention. Feminist groups banded together to form the Francine Hughes Defense Committee with hopes of a landmark decision for a new legal interpretation of self-defense, especially as it applied to women. Protesters filled the cement staircase outside the courthouse, holding signs touting messages like, free Francine Hughes, battered women need support, and stop violence against women. After seven days of testimony, the trial ended. A jury of 10 women and two men took only five hours to come to a unanimous conclusion. They found Francine Moran Hughes not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Meanwhile, relatives of Mickey Hughes maintained that Francine got away with murder. Leaving the courtroom for City Hall, she and her attorney held a press conference. When a reporter asked Francine if she had ever considered herself a liberated woman, she replied, I don't think I've ever been liberated, but I'd like to. After Francine was acquitted, having spent nine months behind bars, she received a bouquet of roses with an anonymous note that read, to a battered rose, which blooms again. But not everyone felt she deserved blossoming. One of Mickey's brothers sent her a note during her jail time threatening, you are next. Newfound fear accompanied her, making even simple tasks such as running errands daunting. Readjusting to motherhood posed challenges too. I thought I was going to have to stay in prison, so I blocked off a lot of emotions toward my children, she said. It was really hard for me to get close to them again. On top of that, her kids had been traumatized by their father's gruesome death, despite their mixed feelings. Their daughter, Christy, who was 12 at the time of the fire, said she spit on his grave and described him as a rotten son of a bitch. For a while, Francine struggled with demons she hadn't yet processed. She partied and drank heavily, attempting to escape her feelings. Finally, she realized she had to stop trying to self-destruct, if only for the sake of her family. Gradually, they got back on their feet, found healing, and grew closer. Meanwhile, Francine crossed paths with country music singer Robert Wilson. Just six weeks before, Robert had been released on parole after serving time for armed robbery. During his time behind bars, Robert completed a degree in psychology. Maybe they understood something about each other, what a person might do when they're pushed beyond their limits, and the desire to make something more of your life thereafter. Whatever the reasons, there was an instant connection. He asked Francine to dance at an outdoor concert, then serenaded her. 
friends warned him not to get involved with a known husband killer, but he said he knew right away there was more to the story. They were married six weeks later and continued raising Francine's kids plus one more together. Robert helped Francine bring her dream of becoming a nurse into fruition. She graduated from nursing school as valedictorian of her class and went on to work as an LPN at several nursing homes. A few years after meeting Robert, she spoke with People magazine. At the time, she was living in a neatly kept, sparsely furnished tract house in Jackson, Michigan. Journalist Joya Deliberto described her voice as girlish and tentative, noting that her eyes conveyed a distrust of strangers. People still look at me like they're trying to figure me out, Francine told her. I don't feel like I have to explain myself to anybody, and I don't need pity or sympathy. I'm just an ordinary person. But ordinary is far from how other people have described Francine. Her widely reported case helped transform public understanding of domestic violence, redefining it as a crime versus a private affair, and spurring the nationwide establishment of battered women's shelters, which helped pave the way for shelters for other genders too. The story gained more attention with the release of The Burning Bed Book in 1980 and the derivative film of the same name in 1984. The intense drama became one of the most revered TV movies of all time, reaching more than 75 million NBC viewers. Francine became one of Farrah Fawcett's most acclaimed roles. In response to the film, Mickey's cousin, Betty Phillips, told the Lansing State Journal, Our family has never denied the violence, but if he could have gotten help, it would have made a difference. A lot of the things in the movie really did happen, but did he deserve to die? No. The system failed both of them. Mickey's father, Berlin, and his brother Donovan, both died by suicide in the years following the fire. While Betty didn't like the film, she said she hoped it was making a positive impact, adding, I know that it opened a lot of eyes. After decades of working as a nurse and loving her family, Francine died of complications of pneumonia at age 69. Afterward, her daughter Nicole, who was seven when Mickey died, spoke of her mother's ability to make people laugh even in times of distress. As a kid, you know something is wrong, but you're taught to run and hide, she said, adding that she and her siblings knew their dad was on a path to kill them. You just have to listen and cry. Mom was strong. We never went hungry, never went without anything we needed. I believe she did it to save us kids and herself. She changed so many lives. She changed the lives of people we will never know. Musicians too were impacted by Francine's story, which inspired Martina McBride's hit song, Independence Day. In 1985, singer-songwriter Lynn Hardy had made a commitment to not perform any of the old-time murder ballads detailing violence against women. Instead, she decided to write a song in which a woman murdered her abuser. A friend alerted her to the Francine Hughes case, and she was baffled by how closely it matched her lyrics. She completed the song, a Smithsonian Folk Song America Anthology selection, with Donna Hebert. It's called 
The Ballad of Francine Hughes. My name is Francine Hughes and I'll tell you no lie. Come listen to my story and I'll try to keep from crying. I murdered my husband, there ain't no denying. It goes on to depict the night Francine burned the family home with Mickey inside, the trial and the verdict, ending with a message about the many cases of abuse that end differently. Well, you've given me my liberty, you think you set me free, but every 18 seconds a woman's beaten just like me, and every day in court another batterer goes free. Today, research shows that a woman is beaten or assaulted every nine seconds. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.